a priest, a rabbi, and a pastor go into a Hollywood bar. Hey, it wasn't me. It was a California pastor. You know that is. Anyway, after them, a violent gang enters and proceeds to create havoc. Boldly, the three clergymen stand up, calling on the gang to cease and desist. Who's going to make us, they say. The rabbi speaks up. Michael Douglas goes to my synagogue. The gang says, so what? So the priest speaks up. I have Mel Gibson in my parish. Ooh, says the gang. We're not afraid of him either. But then the pastor stands up and says, I have Chuck Norris. Immediately, the gang throws down their weapons, gets to their knees, and starts praying for mercy. <laughs> By the way, Michael Douglas is a Jew, Mel Gibson is a Catholic, and Chuck Norris is a Protestant Christian. Let's just put it this way. At least in the category of who has the baddest dude, <laughs> we win. <clears throat> now, what does that joke have to do <clears throat> with our subject matter today? Nothing at all. I just felt like writing a joke this week because, let's face it, the book of Hebrews is heavy. Surprisingly, we're already on part six of our study through the book of Hebrews. Everything so far has been about Jesus. We've talked about the identity of Christ, the superiority of Christ, the salvation of Christ, the humanity of Christ. And today we will talk about the priesthood of Christ. The priesthood of Christ is mentioned within chapters 3, 4, and 5, and is the subject of all of chapters 7 and half of chapter 8. Therefore, for the sake of time, I'll be dealing with this subject much more topically rather than my usual verse-by-verse -verse way, since meticulously wading through all of these verses would keep us on the same subject for weeks, if not months. So I have attempted to boil down the key truths taught in Hebrews regarding the priesthood of Christ and I'll share those truths with you one at a time over the next two to three weeks. We'll see how it goes. As we get into this subject, one of the first things we need to know is that the biblical priesthood, the priests of the Bible, that, that biblical priesthood was designed to point forward to Christ. The entire purpose of the priests in the Old Testament was to administer the sacrificial system. But Jesus came to be the ultimate sacrifice, and that's why the New Testament makes it clear that there is no longer any need for the old system of animal sacrifice. This also means there's no longer any need for human priests. I truly regret that this is offensive to my Catholic friends, but the fact is that there's simply nothing in the New Testament regarding a priestly office in the church. The church of Jesus Christ was never supposed to have human priests. Worse, the idea of a modern-day priestly office takes away from the work of Christ, cheapening His sacrifice on the cross. He died to bridge the gap that priests, in some ways, used to imperfectly fill. There's simply no longer a need for human priests because Jesus now fulfills that role. The reason I'm addressing this head-on is simple. The better way to know God, the subject of Hebrews and of our series, definitively 
leaves behind the idea of men serving as priests. This is one of the most clearly explained reasons that the new way in Christ is actually better. Because human priests were always flawed, and now we simply do not need them. Biblically, the only New Testament church officers were the apostles, the pastors, also known as overseers or elders, and deacons, but not priests. Even the founders of the church, people like Peter and Paul, were never called priests. Their role was never to serve as mediators between people and God. And since the twelve apostles have all died, we are left today with only two official roles in the church. Pastor, elder, overseers, that's one role. And deacons. For the record, our current pastor, elder, overseers are myself, uh, four other men, who have been ordained to this role by other pastors who affirmed their qualifications and calling. Those other four men are pastors Randy, Bevan, Connor, and James. So there's five of us counting me. Also note that we will look to add deacons and a deacon ministry, likely, possibly even this year, uh, definitely in the next year or two of our young history as a church. Now let me say that there are other giftings, or what we sometimes refer to as callings in the church, such as evangelists, um, missionaries, perhaps others. But in terms of church leadership, there are only two roles ordained by God, pastors, who once more are the elders and overseers, and deacons. Now, just by the way, some folks are trying to broaden the word pastor to mean lots of things these days mostly in order to solve some cultural gender tensions. But the position of this church is that the overseers and elders are the pastors, or we could say that the pastors are the elders and overseers. I could spend an entire sermon making that case, but today is not the day for that. According to many passages of Scripture, pastors are to preach, teach, pray, and lead the church while deacons are tasked with ministering to the needs of the congregation on behalf of the pastors for the express purpose of allowing those pastors to focus on preaching, teaching, praying, and leading. That's a summary of what the Bible says about these roles. But I need to get back to the point about priests, which is to say that the only currently ongoing priesthood is that of Jesus Christ. Biblically, no man should be called a priest in the church of Jesus because human priests have been superseded by him. And interestingly, Jesus is not a pastor, elder, overseer, or deacon. Jesus is neither of those things, but he is most certainly our high priest. One of the primary points pounded home continually by the author of Hebrews is the supremacy of the priesthood of Christ over the old priesthood, which God had originated during the time of the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. You may recall that the original earthly priesthood began with the brother of Moses, Aaron. His descendants became the priests who early on officiated the services and sacrifices at the mobile temple called the tabernacle and later did the same at the more permanent temple uh, in Jerusalem. Periodically, a high priest would be appointed to lead and only this high priest could offer certain sacrifices. Only the high priest could enter the most holy place to offer a yearly sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. This was called the Day of Atonement, which you may have heard referred to as Yom Kippur. 
And why don't we continue to practice Yom Kippur in the Christian church? Because we do not believe a human priest needs to make a sacrifice on our behalf any longer. Instead, we celebrate the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on the cross and His resurrection, that which paid the price for all of our sin forever. We simply no longer need a descendant of Aaron to make sacrifices on our behalf, just as we no longer need a day of atonement because Jesus paid it all once and for all and forever. Also note that during Old Testament times before Jesus, there was a secondary set of priests who were of the tribe of Levi as well. They were called Levites, also known as the Levitical priesthood. I once had a band named Levite. That's a sidebar. We were pretty good. Uh, The Levitical priesthood. Many of the Levites were singers, and there were other Levites who were gatekeepers, guards for the temple, instrumentalists who played for the band or for the were the band for the singers. Uh, Levites were generally thought of as temple servants who helped do the work that needed to be done for the sacrificial worship system of the time. So the priesthood of the Levites and the priesthood of the descendants of Aaron had different roles, but they were all priests. Regardless, all the Old Testament religious hierarchy and all the sacrifices and rituals had only ever been designed to point forward to Christ, to prepare for Christ. And so, after He came, there was no longer any need for any of it. No more sacrifices, no more temple, no more priests. This truth is taught throughout the New Testament and especially in the book of Hebrews, as we will discover shortly from our biblical text for today. But as we continue to just lay some groundwork this morning… There's one fact that I want to make sure you do not miss. While there's no longer any need for a Levitical or Aaronic priesthood, that does not mean that you and I no longer need a priest. Thankfully, there is still one priest remaining, and he is still functioning as a priest in this present age. The point of Hebrews is not that we no longer need a priest. We absolutely do. We need a perfect priest, a high priest who mediates before God on our behalf. And you see, we have this perfect priest in Jesus Christ. The Bible says Jesus lives to intercede on our behalf, defending our case to God. We absolutely and desperately do need a priest, but Jesus is the only priest we need. He's more than enough. By definition, a priest is a mediator or a go-between, someone who bridges the gap between our sinful selves and the holy God. We must never forget that our God is still the same holy and fearsome God of the Old Testament. He has not changed. And so, without a mediator, we'd have no chance to be in touch with Him. Even though believers are forgiven, we still sin. We are justified, but we are not yet glorified which means that we continue in an ongoing state of needing a Savior. Understand that while we exist here in these bodies, on this sin-cursed planet, we continue to be in need of a priest who will go between us and God. Fellow believer, one thing you ought to realize is that you do not get access to God apart from the priest whose name is Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never really thought of Jesus as your priest, but that is exactly who He is. And listen, your priest is exactly what Jesus must be if you are to have a relationship with God. Listen to all these verses from Hebrews. Chapter 3, verse 1. 
Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Chapter 4, verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Chapter 5, verse 10, tells us that Jesus was designated by God as a high priest. Chapter 7, verse 3 says he remains a priest perpetually. Chapter 7, verse 24 says Jesus holds the priesthood permanently. Chapter 8, verse 1 says we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of God. Those are all straight out of Hebrews, the book we're currently studying as a church. What will we get out of this book? Well, maybe one of the things is to better understand what a priest is and maybe to more deeply comprehend that we actually do need one and to become thankful that we have one in Jesus Christ. He is the high priest of our confession, which is to say that he is our priest because we believe in him. By faith, Jesus is our priest, and he promised he would be for as long as we need him. Sometimes we Protestants have been heard saying, I don't need a priest. I can go straight to God. You know, I understand what we mean by that, but I'm not sure we're being as precise as we should be. I guess we could spin around in circles on this a bit since Jesus actually is God. But I think it's important to understand that the only way we have access to our holy God in heaven is through Christ. And that access is ours precisely because he serves as our high priest. As the Apostle Paul put it, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. A priest is a mediator between God and men. The Bible says there is only one who is adequate for this. There is only one mediator between God and mankind. His name is Jesus. Now, let's get into some of the specific ways that the priesthood of Christ is better than the priesthood, which was only meant to foreshadow him. Again, I've simply plucked these truths from out of the many passages on this subject contained in the book of Hebrews. So here we go. The priesthood of Christ is better because, number one, he is the builder. Let's look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is where we left off in our text last week. The Bible says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Why would the author of Hebrews choose to make a comparison between Moses and Jesus in this context? The bottom line is that with the Jews, the original audience here of the book of Hebrews, remember this is written to the Jews who had accepted Christ as the Messiah. And so with those Jews, you didn't get any higher in importance than Moses. They almost worshiped Moses because he was the one who had given them the law of God. Moses was the ultimate go-between in their minds. And up to that point, they were probably right. There had been many high priests, but Moses was considered more important than any of them. And even his brother Aaron, the first official priest, answered to him. In many ways, Moses 
who was also of the tribe of Levi, was the first human priest. Some of you think I just made a mistake. But just wait until you hear next week's sermon. (laughs) Moses had brought God's message to the people. Moses had represented God to the people. Keep in mind, the first five books of the Bible were written down by Moses, and they were given to him by direct revelation from God. The Torah, as the Jews called it, is completely foundational to every other prophet's message, and every other prophet's message was weighed against the Torah. Moses was the first great mediator or go-between. Before Christ, Moses would have to be considered the greatest of all human priests. And yet Moses could not make anyone holy. Because he was not God. Moses was not the builder, so he could not fix the building. So here again we see the theme of Hebrews in the title of this series, A Better Way. Jesus was a better priest than all the other priests, and he was a better priest even than Moses. In verse 3, the writer of Hebrews says, For Christ has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. So what is he saying? He's saying that in spite of his greatness, Moses is really just a house like the rest of us, while Christ is actually the builder of the house. Anything good that came out of Moses is to be attributed to Christ because Christ is the builder of Moses. And notice what it says in verse 6, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Confidence and hope are aspects of faith. This means that if your faith is in Christ, then you have become His house, and that means He is building you. But what does all this have to do with the priesthood of Christ, the context of this passage? Well, how much better would a priest be if he really knew you from the inside out? How much better if he could see through your walls and if he knew what was in your attic? How much better if he could always see behind the curtains and the facade? If a priest is a mediator between a person and God, what if your priest came to live in your house? What if the house we're talking about here is your body? Think about it. Jesus is building houses to live in. The Bible says he comes to live in us. And by the way, Jesus is just that kind of builder who moves in before the work is complete. He's that kind of builder who never stops working on the house even after he moves in. Back in Missouri, where I'm originally from, virtually every house has a basement. A lot of people move in with the, with the basement completely, un, with it unfinished. It's just concrete. And they work on it while they live there. I did that as well in two different houses that we own. I finished portions of the basement little by little. Winter would come, and Connor and I would start working on the unfinished project of our basement. Some of you know there's something rewarding about making your house better and better while you live there. Like Lowe's says, never stop improving or Home Depot. You can build it. We can help. They may have an ulterior motive in these slogans, (laughs) but I like the concept. I really do. Here in the Pacific Northwest, we just keep building stuff in the backyard. Am I right? Some of you people have a backyard that rivals the Portland Japanese garden. Also, it can grow moss and mold for half the year. But regardless, (laughs) one way or another, many people like to keep building something inside or outside their house. 
Jesus gets that. He's that kind of builder. Our text says that we are the houses of Christ, and it says He is the builder of those houses. As the Creator, Jesus built these houses in the first place, but we also know that after He moves in, He starts building new stuff in the empty space. Sometimes you might even need to tear out some of the old to build something new. But it seems that he never runs out of space when it comes to building things inside us. Just think for a minute about what it means that Jesus Christ lives in us. That we are his house. That he is building us into a better and better home for himself from the inside out. Think about what this means in terms of his role as our high priest. If Jesus is God in the flesh and He lives in us, if we are His house, as it says in verse 6, if, if He's building us, as it says in verse 3, if the same person is our high priest, as it says in verse 1, then what other priest could we possibly ever need? When the highest priest of history, so much higher even than the first priest, Moses and Aaron, comes to live inside you, why would you need any other priest ever? You wouldn't. The high priest is in the house, y'all. Later at lunch, I'll be debating whether I pulled that off or not. The whole, I don't know, whatever that is. What is that? I don't know what that is. Does it mean something bad? I hope not. It's an astounding truth. The priest who mediates between us and God also lives inside us. And while he's there, he's busy building us into something that is holy and acceptable to God. Listen, Jesus is not a priest you have to go find when you feel guilty. Jesus is a priest who's with you all the time, and he's always working on you. Who could have ever envisioned such a priesthood? When you turn to Christ in faith, he redeems the condemned building that you were. without Him. And He declares you to be holy because of your faith in the sacrifice He made on the cross. At that point, upon your faith, your confidence and your hope in Him, as we read about, He moves in. And from the inside out, your high priest starts building you into something that is worthy of His name. Indeed, you are more than His house because when God moves in, houses actually become temples. Verse 1 calls us holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. Well, maybe you don't feel like that could possibly describe you, but see, if Jesus is in your house, it does. What makes you holy? You are holy only because you are the house of Christ. 1 Peter 2.5 says, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our high priest is the owner, the indweller, and he's absolutely the builder of the house that represents our lives. That is the first reason his priesthood is a better way, because he is the builder. Secondly, the priesthood of Christ is better because he is without sin. For this principle, let's look first at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 28, where it says this, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, 
undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. We need to understand that the priesthood which foreshadowed Christ for all those centuries was a priesthood tainted by sin. It was flawed. It was imperfect. It could not adequately bridge the gap between mankind and God. That's why they kept having to offer sacrifices over and over and over again daily, as it says. They were sinners representing sinners to a holy God. Let me just make this clear. There is no man or woman on earth who does not sin. Even the highest and holiest priest of biblical times had to offer up sacrifices for his own sin first before he offered sacrifices for the sins of the people. These men obeyed the law of God to extremes which none of us can probably imagine. And yet, no matter the fact that they tried so hard, the Bible says they still sinned. There is no man or woman on earth who does not sin. Even the Apostle Paul lamented his own sinfulness, going so far as to call himself the chief of sinners. Once he said, why do I keep doing the things I don't want to do? We've probably all said that. Confession time. Your pastor is a sinful man. I win quite a few battles, but sometimes I lose. I feel like I've grown past some things, but other things keep coming back. I don't always know all the ways that I sin. (laughs) But I do know that I sinned a few weeks ago. (laughs) Let's just make it real. I also repented of that sin, and I left it at the cross. But you should know that sometimes I sin. And sometimes I even know it when I do. By the way, if you can't identify specific moments when you sin, there might be a problem. But now most of you are sitting there and wondering, what did Pastor Mark do? (laughs) Is he doing drugs? Is he looking at pornography? Does he use cuss words when nobody's around? Did he get drunk? And just as as soon as I tell you, no, it isn't anything on your list, then you'll just come up with another list of things to wonder about, right? Some of you might think I shouldn't talk like this that I should at least act like I don't sin for the sake of example, to keep up the persona, or maybe even that I should be beyond sin as a pastor. Others of you, of course, aren't the slightest bit surprised. (laughs) Those who laugh the hardest. (laughs) Sadly, though, I do sometimes sin, probably more than I know. That said, I do endeavor to live a holy life and to stay above reproach, as the Bible says a pastor should. I don't have any ongoing sin, anything to hide. But you should be very aware that sometimes I fail and sometimes I sin. And see, I'm not just saying, yep, I'm a sinner, like all of you, in a general way. No, I'm telling you that sometimes I actually sin. And I don't like saying it. I don't like that it is true. But the point is that if you're looking to me as an icon of holiness, please stop. 
I want to be a good example, the best that I can. But if you're looking to me for holiness, I have already failed you. I am not a priest, folks. A pastor is not a priest. A priest really should be perfectly holy. And listen to me, that is precisely why there is only one true priest. His name is Jesus. He is the only one qualified to be your priest. And if you believe in Him, that is exactly what He is, your priest. From Hebrews chapter 4, starting with verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Some say Jesus simply could not have sinned. But then how could He have been tempted? If there is no choice, how can something be tempting? Is it not the very nature of temptation to have a choice? I believe that part of emptying himself, as the book of Philippians puts it, or of being made for a little while lower than the angels, as Hebrews chapter 2 puts it, included the action of making it possible that Jesus could have sinned. The Bible says that Jesus was actually tempted, tempted so much that he has sympathy. He was tempted, and yet that he did not sin. The point is that those two things together are exactly what make Jesus a perfect high priest for us. Because Jesus was tempted yet did not sin, He sits on a throne of mercy. He's on the throne because He did not sin. It's a throne of mercy because He faced temptation and has sympathy. This is why we may now draw near with confidence to that throne. This is why this is a throne of grace, a place of help in time of need. Jesus is a better high priest because he experienced the agony of temptation while also overcoming it, choosing not to sin against God. Third, the priesthood of Christ is better because he is the Son of God. Now, I'm not just coming up with these as ideas in my head, but these are repeated truths from the text absolutely permeating the book of Hebrews, which we are currently studying. In fact, let's just machine gun through a few passages which link the priesthood of Christ to His Sonship. First, from today's text in particular, chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 6, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, faithful as a son over His house, whose house we are. And then from chapter 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Chapter 7, verse 3, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. And also verse 28, for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son, made perfect forever. Notice that phrase, the word of the oath which came after the law. This is a reference to the promise of the new covenant in which God promised a high priest would eventually come. 
This promise was given long after the law had been revealed through Moses. Again, the writer of Hebrews is referring to the fact that the former priesthood was always to be seen as a foreshadowing of the true priesthood to eventually arrive in the Son of God. More importantly, what we see through these verses is that there is a link between the idea of Christ being the Son of God and His role as our high priest. And now it's time for me to delve into an area of nuance. I believe that the idea of Jesus being the Son of God requires careful thought. I think an overly literal interpretation of this phrase is what leaves some people with a shallow and misinformed idea that Jesus basically came into being when He was born in Bethlehem. Some cults have gone so far with this as to invent a heavenly goddess to be true, the true mother of Jesus. Muslims, by the way, have a terrible time with the idea of God having a son. And frankly, in some ways, I don't blame them. They hear the phrase, son of God, and they assume we mean it literally, as if Jesus were the literal physical offspring of God. The Quran teaches against the idea that God would procreate. And it is actually right in that particular point. The idea of God having a son sounds like something from paganism or Greco-Roman polytheism. And this, is all, this also fosters the idea that Jesus was just a bit less than sort of a chip-off-the-old-block half-god or similar ideas that originate from Roman mythology. This is why we need to fully understand what the biblical writers actually meant by the phrase, son of God. And this is why we need to understand what they did not mean. Jesus was often called the Son of God by the New Testament writers because it is true that at one point in history, He was born of a virgin who had conceived of the Holy Spirit, and that He lived as a real human being on this earth for a time. This is one very important aspect of the identity of Jesus. But now also keep in mind that Son of God is only one of the names the biblical writers use to describe Christ. Even from chapter 1 of the book we're studying currently, Jesus referred to, remember, as the radiance of God's glory and also the exact representation of His being. We spent a whole Sunday on the fact that Jesus was always God from eternity. And so when it comes to Jesus being the Son of God, let me boil this down to something you can remember, which is this, the phrase, Son of God is a metaphor. I got to get a drink while you think about that. As a title, Son of God is meant to communicate the fact that Jesus Christ was both fully God and fully man. I realize this may be cringeworthy. But the fact is that Son of God is a metaphor. Now, by saying that Son of God is a metaphor, I do not deny that it is certainly one of the most biblical ways to refer to Jesus. But I'm only saying that we need to understand the limit of the title, which is basically our own humanity. In short, there are limits to our words when it comes to defining God. I thought long and hard about it before I started saying that Son of God is a metaphor. And you may want to think about it some more also. But by definition, 
The phrase son of God must be a metaphor unless you think we literally mean that Jesus was born into existence as the literal offspring of God. No, as a metaphor, the son part refers to the humanity of Christ and the God part refers to the fact that he both was God and was sent by God. He was God and he was of God and he was born as a man, son of God. Remember that the New Testament writers also called Jesus things like Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel does not mean God's son is with us. But literally the word means God himself is with us. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be called mighty God, not God's mighty son. Even Jesus himself made this clear, saying various things like, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And he said, I and the Father are one. So the phrase son of God is simply not to be taken to its most literal extreme. This phrase is not meant to communicate that God had a son in the same way that you or I as humans might have a son. Again, this metaphorical title points to the dual nature of Christ as the only one who has ever been both fully God and fully man. Know this. The God of heaven is not flesh and blood that he should have literal offspring. If you ever wind up in an evangelistic conversation with a Jew, a Muslim, a Mormon, or a Jehovah's Witness, it is going to be very important that you understand what I am talking about. We worship one God. Now, I've chased a rabbit in attempting all of this theological exactitude there's probably a name out there for my position. I don't care. I just, I just go with the Bible. That's, this is all I can do is teach what I understand and what God reveals to me and, uh, as I pray through what I'm going to preach each week. I, I just, I'm, not one of the, I'm just not super systematic. Some of you know what I mean. So I've chased a rabbit, uh, but as usual... The rabbit might be the thing many of you remember from this sermon. Yet back to the point, how does the sonship of Christ relate to the concept of the priesthood of Christ? More precisely, how does understanding that sonship does not mean Jesus is something other than God, or as if he were literal offspring rather than God in the flesh, relate to the point? Let's try an illustration. Somehow, you have become an enemy of the President of the United States. Some of you are like, that wouldn't be that hard to imagine. <clears throat> For whatever reason, he's very upset with you. And this thing about you is so personally offensive that the POTUS isn't, really, isn't going to use the FBI or the Secret Service or whoever else. But instead, he goes so far as to send the vice president to speak with you. You are hoping for reconciliation through the VP because, after all, this lady's boss could have you killed and so you make your case to the vice president, hoping she will do her best to exonerate you when she gets back to the president. Things go well, and the VP assures you that she will plead your case to the president. What you didn't know, however, is that the VP was not actually the VP. No, you'd been speaking with the president himself in disguise. Yes, the old white-haired white guy had somehow appeared to you convincingly, even as a younger black woman. 
And this is some kind of disguise. Okay, it was like Mission Impossible, all right? But the point is that you thought you were going through a mediator, but the mediator turned out to be the president himself. What does this mean for your goal to reconcile? Well, for one thing, it means that there was no possibility of miscommunication in the handoff. It means that your heart was actually seen and heard by the party you didn't think you would be able to approach. It also means that the president cared enough to come to you himself, which is pretty amazing. Basically, it means that you now have a direct line to the person who some would say is the most powerful figure in the world. Suffice it to say, it's better to talk to the president than the vice president. So what if God said that because of his holiness, you and I must use a mediator to approach him? And what if we later found out that mediator was actually God in disguise? Maybe that sounds weird. But when the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being comes wrapped up in a human body so that we can see him and talk to him, is that not the literal definition of a disguise? Would Jesus have been able to live a normal life and do the things he did as a human if everyone understood from the beginning that he was God? No, he had to come in disguise. As a son, or as I said earlier in this series, I like to put it this way. Jesus Christ is God in accessible form. This is exactly what it means that the Son of God is our high priest. This is why it's better. It's a better priesthood than any priesthood of man. This is why the new way is a better way because Jesus was both man and God, exactly what is meant by the phrase Son of God. Next week, we'll cover the other three reasons that the priesthood of Christ is a better priesthood according to the book of Hebrews. And I must say that we'll be talking about some very interesting stuff, including one very intriguing figure known as Melchizedek. Who was he anyway? If you like to be intrigued, you do not want to miss next week. Mind-blowing. So, all Chuck Norris jokes aside, we really do have the most powerful force in the universe on our side. The Bible says Jesus is our high priest. Isn't that awesome? He's the only priest we need in order to go straight to God. So let me ask you a question. Have you been to see your priest lately? Have you gone into the confession booth with him? Have you prayed at the altar over which he presides? Jesus died to be your high priest. When's the last time he took advantage of his services? How about right now? As the band is coming up and the music will be playing, I want to ask any who will to come forward and pray up here at the front. The area, this area is going to be an altar today. I'm just designating this space um, as holy ground. We can say anything, anywhere we walk as holy ground because we're temples of the Holy Spirit. We're going to designate this place as a place to come together. And you can pray in your seat too, but I hope some will come because there's something about physically doing something and involving ourselves. And so those who can, we're going to come and kneel. Uh, we're going to go to God through our high priest, Jesus Christ. So we're going to do it together. If you can, come on up. I encourage you to begin with confession, like maybe, I guess, you would with a priest because you actually do have one in Christ. And then you can move on from there to whatever you need to tell God. Maybe you need to pray for yourself. Maybe you need to pray for somebody else. Come to Jesus. He really is our high priest. Would you, some of you come on up here and pray. Everybody pray 
Think about how Jesus is your go-between as you pray. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.